Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. This is the 185th edition of the program. Thank you so much for joining us. On the broadcast this week, I will continue with a series that I've been working on to look at garment sector workers in Montreal as they organized for workplace justice, a campaign that was supported by the Immigrant Worker Center. I've been featuring a bunch of interviews with community organizers who were involved in this campaign between 2006 and 2008. This week, we will speak with Bita Islami, who at the time was organizing at the Immigrant Workers Center and was involved in this campaign to support Lemoore garment sector workers. This interview series is part of a look at the ways that garment sector workers faced the realities of deindustrialization in Montreal's garment district and organized for workplace justice and just compensation as their jobs were being outsourced to the Global South, where Lamour Inc., a Canadian-based company that works in Quebec, was outsourcing jobs to look for a labor market where they could more deeply exploit workers for lower wages in the garment sector. So I think there's a lot of important and interesting intersections here. Also the ways that community organizing out of small community organizations like the Immigrant Workers Center can make a difference. I worked on this series with Lauren Laframboise, who is a researcher and activist and is involved in a project called Deindustrialization and the Politics of Our Time. And this is an initiative at the History Department at Concordia University. Here is our conversation with Bita Islami about her work at the Immigrant Workers Center. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Can you just tell us a little bit about what the Immigrant Workers Center is and what your role was at the organization sort of throughout the entire time that you worked there? Okay. Well, the Immigrant Workers Center, I think it would, I'd describe it as, and again, the context for this interview is that it's been a long time and I've had two babies, so I feel like I don't remember anything about life, but um, I regard it as like a an education and action sort of center for migrant workers. Um, so there was like always two components and that was like building people's uh, literacy, literacy around labor rights, um, both individually and ideally collectively. That was always the goal is to like build movement. Um, and the other aspect was like to always be around to help people organize if they wanted to take things further. And um, we did both of those things uh, through workshops and um, the sort of heart of the work was walk-ins, clients, people who came in with uh, whatever issues or questions about things that were going on in their working lives. Yeah, and so what was your role working there? How long did you work there and all of that? I worked there for a few years um, in my early 20s. Yeah, it was my early 20s. So I'm like 43 now. So this is 20 years ago, probably. So yeah, I worked there for a few years. I was hired as the coordinator. Um, it was sort of, it was always staffed um, through, you know, working grant to grant. It was one of the most underfunded places. It, I don't, I imagine it still is. Um, the most solid places usually are. Um, and uh, I was hired on as the coordinator. It was staffed by mostly, I think, social work students doing their, um, you know, four day final internships of their bachelor programs. Um, 
Yeah, and and so there was only one staff when I started. It was the coordinator, and they just kind of did everything with the help of extremely active board members and ideally other activists who got involved in unpaid capacities. Awesome. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you remember from like the beginning of the Lamore campaign. So like, who was working there? What were some of the issues that they were facing when mm-hmm. people came in? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the ability to actually pull off the Lamore campaign was because we had built some, uh, some like organizing capacity on behalf of the center. We had hired on Mustafa Hinaway and Joey Callagay, and we sort of had a team for the first time and I remained a coordinator. And so I hired, like I took care of like the logistical, um, maintenance of the organization and um, and Mustafa and Joey were both uh, community organizers. Those were the names of the positions. So I had a supportive role to the work they did, kind of thing. Um, so that was that was like who was there to receive. Um, and I, from my memory, and maybe this is just romantic, and maybe it's not accurate, but um, was just that one worker came in, being like, "This fucked up things happening to us. We've been working at this place forever, and." they're just filing bankruptcy and that's the end of things for us and is this can't be right you know um and with every walk-in there was always the question like have you spoken to your co-workers like do you have co-workers that are experiencing the same thing and often the answer was yes and um that question and those answers always like revealed the kind of natural organic solidarity that happens between people in working places, especially people from the margins who are used to leaning on um, collective justices and collective resources to make things happen. Um, That's an extremely class-based and also like a cultural reality. And then there was this like romantic memory of like, then one person coming in and then bringing in a second person the next meeting there's five people and all of a sudden there's eight and then it's like wait a second everyone wants to get involved and then you have a meeting of 30 people in a very small little humble like shittily renovated like um cockroach building in Cote Neige um and that was like uh the the meat of the of the Lamour campaign Maybe we can talk about some of the um, the actions that were part of the Lemoore campaign. Um, so Stefan had talked about, you know, picketing in the freezing cold, all of that stuff. So what do you remember about the sort of campaigning aspect? Mm-hmm. And stuff? Uh, there's there's funny memories about political organizing that have to do with really random things that have nothing to do with political organizing. Like for example, and that's it's a funny um, correlation because I first came into working with the IWC when I was like 18 around the Living Caregivers program and around a um, campaign around a living caregiver who was set to be deported even though her son was Canadian born, Melka Salvador. And we had weekly um, pickets in front of Tintin Saint Antoine. Tintin Saint Antoine is a wind trap. Chabanel is the same thing. So that was my like memory of it that it's funny now those memories kind of like uh, coincide in my brain of um, pickets and wind traps around migrant justice issues. So Chabanel, yeah, we, we had pickets outside. Um, workers were really active. Um, they showed up, they, they led things, um, and, uh, we really, really took leadership from them. Um, 
so there are pickets with megaphones. Um, like I particularly remember like an older Haitian guy. So that was the makeup of Lemur workers. It was all migrant people. Um, like I think, you know, Haitian, Pakistani, Polish, like there was, there was people from all sorts of like, I guess you could relate them back to like migration patterns from like the eighties. Um, the 70s and 80s um they're all middle-aged and yeah they had put in decades of work at this one place with the promise of you know being able to retire and most of them on the heels of their retirement had the rug pulled out from under them um and uh that is just like the law of like state capitalism that they that that corporations were able to do that that they could uh, file for bankruptcy and owe their workers nothing um yeah so even though we knew the law of it, we, at a certain point, wanted to appeal to the heart of it. And that's what we did, you know, like even, even, you know, we all know that, you know, laws don't make, uh, laws are not necessarily just. And what was going on was definitely not just. Um, and so we were trying to, yeah, appeal to the labor minister to do something better for, um, for retirement amongst uh, garment workers, factory workers, specifically in the, yeah, the textile industry. Um, if I could just keep rambling about things that I know, like the Lamour, um, Lamour was one of like the last, um, one of the last companies to, to exist in the Chabonel district um, and one of the last textile manufacturers. Um, they produced lingerie, they were called Lamour. It was all like ironic. Um, and I think people talked about, we already discussed about making that connection and doing an action on Valentine's Day um, <clears throat> and building that into our sort of like campaign hooks about like, you know, where's the love and, um, uh, but yeah, they were one of, the, one of the last ones to exist. And there was also this, this other like um, irony that didn't escape the workers that they had come to this country to to work in these industries that other people did not want to work into that were like low wage paying um hard hard jobs physically really hard jobs you don't work in textile factories and then go on to have second careers in your 60s these uh these jobs destroy your body um and that's what happens to working class people and um and uh so they had left their countries to fill this sort of like this area of labor here um, and then in the early aughts, um, these, these industries were moving back to their, their countries of origin, um, to dig deeper into the third world, you know, to decimate it on a further level, to go straight to the source, not to just extract its people, but then to go back and extract the people who, who still, who were still there, who didn't have the means to leave, um, so it, it really exemplified this like this uh this circle of injustice that people from that generation of of uh migrants like were faced with yeah in those industries um today when people think about chabanel in montreal it's sort of like removed from any sort of history it's like oh there's buildings that once were uh, filled with textile workshops and we know that that existed but it's really I think important for people to like get a sense of what actually was going down um, so can you just talk a bit about like what Chabanel was like at that time like 
obviously there was workplaces, there was actions at that time in, in Chabonel. Um, there's sort of like, um, you can feel something happen there when you visit now, but it seems sort of vacant. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's always meaningful to hear actual like memories from somebody who can illustrate that it was not vacant mm -hmm. and that people struggled, that the jobs didn't just leave out of, out of the blue and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. My memory is that, of course, this like decimation was gradual, but my memory was that it was a ghost town by that time. Mm -hmm. And that that was part of what was difficult about building movement around it. It was that we were used to doing flyering campaigns at workplaces, you know, and there was barely any foot traffic left. And it kind of spoke to how destroyed the industry up there already was. Um, funnily enough, I ran into and Stefan, you would remember this, um, one of uh, the, the mothers of a non-status Algerian family that we worked with. We ran into her up there because she was picking up a friend and it was like remarkable that there was a person up there and that there was another business in the building. Um, so she was, you know, and then we're talking about non-status Algerians working in the textile industry up there. Um, but, um, but that there, there, there really wasn't much left. And that's my memory of it. Um, that might have seemed normal to us, kids who didn't grow up um, with parents in that industry up there. Um, but the workers there always commented on it. They always commented on how how everything had changed so much. Yeah, yeah. That's my memory of it. Yeah. They would talk about how the How yeah, and and the, and the buildings and yeah, the the capacity the the life that was uh, and livelihood that happened in that area that it had changed this is like really one of the last campaigns it seems of that area yeah yeah, yeah I think and, and even what what the topic of of the campaign is also indicative of that you know like it wasn't about the working condition there mm -hmm. which fuck there's so much to campaign about there it was about the end of it for them the end of that workplace and also the end of their working lives you know so um that also yeah the the demands and the aims of the campaign the realities of the workers also speaks to how that was like a closing chapter of that area um yeah that's yeah those are some really interesting reflections um so you talked about like you know the sort of limitations of the law and stuff like that like so what were some of the like legal challenges like was it like so you were talking about like the end of their careers and things like that was it for like compensation um yeah maybe you can talk about like the limitations of like legal compensation or like the legal frameworks in terms of like compensating people for like you know losing a job that they've worked for their entire lives mm -hmm. What I do remember and what I've seen like show its ugly head in other like labor disputes is that that corporations can file for bankruptcy and workers have no protection, you know, so that's 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 the extent of like my legal memory of of what was going on. Yeah, is that uh, that this company was able to file for bankruptcy um, and um, and that uh, its workers had had nothing for it, you know? 
you know, and it's clearly such a, like, feels like such a fundamental injustice to somebody who's, like, you know, going through that sort of thing, you know, that that the company is protected through, like, bankruptcy laws or whatever, and they don't actually owe anything to, to workers, so... Yeah, yeah and, and, and the truth of those things is that it's not like when you think, as a kid, when I thought about bankruptcy, I was like, oh, that sucks. Like, you lost everything and now you have nothing. Yeah. But that's not what bankruptcy is. Like, these people were moving overseas to, like, to squeeze more blood out of a nickel, you know? Like, they, it's not like they were... No, <laughs> I don't think they were suffering on a corporate level because of this, you know? We know that, that, that bankruptcy on not on individual levels, but bankruptcy at a business level, like, usually just fucks workers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. It's a clean slate, you know, to yeah. just start anew. Yeah. 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 Um, did you have a question? Yeah, I was just wondering, like, often when people, I think, would uh, imagine organizing, right? Like, it's, okay, well, how does it happen, right? And um, how do you organize with workers that are not represented by unions, right? So, like, the, the Immigrant Workers' Centre has clearly illustrated that there's a huge, like, space within, like, labour realities in Quebec that needs to be addressed, like, when it comes to, like, immigrant workers, non-status workers. Um, and so those, um, like, sort of structural realities of violence, precarity, like, affect a lot of workers today. So, like, so from your... Like, you went into the IWC at a certain time, like, post-9-11, where also, like, the Quebec economy was becoming more intertwined with that type of, like, dependency on precarious work. Mm -hmm. So can you, like, share a bit about, like, what your thinking was at that time? Like, why that was important for you to be there and to be involved in a campaign like L'Amour? Like, I remember you were talking at the time about why it was so important and, like, trying to mobilize people around, like, supporting workers who were racialized or non-status or both. Mm-hmm. Um... Like, just your memories of that time and, and why you were involved in the IWC. Well, I, those things are kind of personal. I, I, I think I've gotten less personal about those things because I've... Anyways, I've gotten less personal about those things as I've aged. But in my early 20s, that was everything. You know, I was deep into understanding my own experience through identity politics. Um, I would venture to say that identity politics were very different then, but um, but you know I, I'm I'm since a lot more alienated from them, um, in their current manifestations. But you know I I came to that work because I grew up, um, in a, you know a mixed race refugee family in a small town in uh, in Quebec, and we were some of the only like people of color and that deeply deeply affected me and continues to deeply affect me so at, in my politicization I was always drawn to to to, to faces and, and people who spoke English with a different accent and people that reminded me of my father so it was like my seeing my father work for very little with a PhD um and, and growing up working class and being coming from a family that was highly educated, um, at least my father was, um, it was that injustice that like informed my, yeah, my motivations in my early 20s. And I, my, my first introduction into it was through uh, the Immigrant Workers' Center, actually. So I, I came into it when I was like 18, and then I ended up working for them in my early 20s, um, mid-early 20s. 
Um, and uh, yeah, again, it was through the Live-In Caregiver program, program campaign um, that was run by PNI and um, and supported by the Immigrant Worker Center. The Immigrant Worker Center was just starting. It was in it was in a tiny, tiny, tiny space in Cote d'Ange. Um, and uh, what moved me so much about it was that those people reminded me of my father, you know, like that, and that's, that's what the motivation was. So, so the, the suffering of it and the injustice of it was extremely personal to me. And it was like a very emotional time because of, of course you're like, and also that I was in my early 20s and your political awakenings and your political development at that age is extremely emotional and intense, you know, and, um, so I remember it being an emotionally hard thing to do, to organize with like middle-aged immigrants during the day, you know, that, uh, that entirely reminded me of the people who raised me and were closest to me. So, you know, always chasing a justice for people, like that's, that's what it was. And it was in its purest form in my 20s, yeah. So yeah, we have this kind of last question about like what the Immigrant Workers Center's role is in sort of a like changing economy. So for example, like we have Lemoore, it was a, you know, quote unquote dying industry, the textile industry, but then some more recent campaigns that the IWC is working with like Dollarama workers, contract workers, things like that. So yeah, in, in your view, like what's the role of the IWC in kind of like helping migrant workers through these changes in the labor market? Exactly. Well, that yeah. was always the thing. Like what's really cool about the IWC is that they were all these like third world leftists who had really strong connections and respect for organized labor in Quebec, you know, and it's honestly something that you don't find like all over the place in activism in Montreal. There's often a critique of, of organized labor, a critique of unions, a dismissal of them. There's extremely like, there's hard historical lines through May Day marches. Like there's all sorts of symbolic ways that this, this division plays out. And the IWC was this place where there was a respect for organized labor and there was also a lot of support from organized labor. A lot of the funding from it came from union grants. Um, so it was, it was, it's a funny position because there's this, this, this push and pull. There's a total frustration with um, organized labor not um, mm -hmm. taking on the, the, the work of, of like the, the, the industries that, um, that migrants work in. Mm -hmm. um, although there's, there's been efforts that are small in the grand scheme of things but make really big moves. The, their work with agricultural workers, um, TWAC had put in tons of time and energy and employing people to work with migrant workers and it, it's the thing is that the train is so unfamiliar to them right like um i remember t there was talk and effort around working with um starting to work with the del delivery industry um and delivery workers and and now obviously that's so much more relevant and um we've seen how that whole uh area of labor is totally blown up but at the time, it was just talking about working with cab drivers um, and um, some areas of delivery. Um, but that, that never, you know, really took shape. Um, and what was hard about it is that these are people on the move, right? So, so it's not the traditional thing of going into a, a working building and, and working with the people there or going into a hospital or a factory. Um, it was 
it, it, there's always like this kind of barrier, right? Um, and in some ways, it's hard not to think that those are like those are intentional moves on the on the part of like management and and corporate interests is to 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 bring people into industries that are hard to organize um, or are non traditional. But um, anyways, it, it's it's been. Uh, a frustration with organized labor that they haven't been more created or committed into in in working with um, you know traditional migrant labor areas of work yeah but at the same time there was always this a deep degree of respect from organized labor for the work of uh, the immigrant worker center but yeah the immigrant worker center fills that role like that was always the distinction like for non-unionized workers you know um, and it was awesome if people wanted to unionize when they came through us but no one barely anyone who came through us was already unionized um and it's such a crucial role like the you know migration patterns have changed they've exploded um the way people get here now in recent years has been an even more precarious circumstances right so they come here with even even less um they come with even less. They've come from from worse situations, and the desperation is even more acute. And corporate interests know this. They prey upon it, and they they chisel away at at you know at compensation and dignified work in every way that they can. And um, they're doing that like in a you know a demonic to a demonic degree these days. Um, and uh, hopefully places like the Immigrant Worker Center, grassroots organizations that are rooted in migrant realities, um, you know, fill, fill those gaps. But it's a, it's a huge, it's a, it's a huge uh, undertaking, you know. That was a conversation with Bita Islami, who is a community activist. And she was involved in the Immigrant Worker Center at a time when that organization between 2006 and 2008 was supporting garment sector workers at Lamour Inc. That is a company based in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada, that was outsourcing garment sector jobs to the global south for cheaper workplace conditions. And this is a context where we can see that deindustrialization in a context of a G7 country like Canada often equals companies looking to replace those jobs in the context of a global south labor reality where they can more deeply exploit workers. Also, this is interesting because this series looks at the ways that immigrant workers organize to fight for just compensation and their workplace rights in the context of Canada. So thank you so much to Bita for being part of this program and also to my collaborator on this series, Lauren Love Framboise from the Deindustrialization and the Politics of Our Time project that's based at Concordia University. This has been another edition of Free City Radio, which I host and produce. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal, and we air on CKUT 90.3 FM on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. On CGLO 1690 a.m., also in Geogeague, Montreal, on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. 
on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesdays, on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria, B.C. on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. and Saturdays at 7 a.m., on Met Radio 12.80 a.m. in Toronto at 5.30 a.m. on Fridays, and on CKCU 93.1 FM in Ottawa on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. We are also a podcast, which you can find on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just look us up. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll speak to you next week.